show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy, Larry. What are we drinking today? I'm drinking a Pisco Sour. (gasps) I am drinking a Pisco Sour. Let's compare notes. Well, yours obviously looks better and it's probably homemade. Mine comes from a can. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Yep. (laughs) That is... (laughs) That's exactly what happened. Uh, Talk me through yours first of all, then. Um, So, obviously, the main ingredients in a pisco sour is pisco and egg white, among other things. So, it's not vegan. So, it's like, I could try and look up the ingredients and then try and source pisco and aquafaba and blah, blah. Oh, I could just buy this one in a can that's right here in front of me on the cardo. So, I did that. (laughs) by a company called Liberation and I thought oh well it's blatantly going to have egg in it isn't it but it Mm. hasn't got egg in it so it's probably not even a pisco sour it's some blasphemous pisco sour flavoured juice so (laughs) So has it not got a creamy head it's not it's it's just green (laughs) (laughs) it's just green look at my creamy head yeah I mean that's I feel that's quite impressive. Yeah, I did I did home make it. I um uh, I did use aquafaba. It's very easy. You just you buy a can of chickpeas. Oh, I know then... it's easy. I'm just very lazy. <laughs> 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 Put like a tablespoon into the um into the shaker along with some pisco, some lime juice and some sugar, and then you shake that up and you do that without the ice first, and that's what helps the aquafaba foam. And then you put ice in, then you shake it again, mm-hmm. and then you get a lovely thing. Um, yeah, I went and bought um, some pisco, especially. I went for yeah. Machu Pisco. Nice. <laughs> this brand, just purely because I enjoyed the name. Yeah. Called the name. Supernatural Spirit of the Andes. 100% natural. Um, and it's got a little introduction on the back. Um, I think I should I should read what it says and then hand over to you later to tell us more about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, It says, Machu Pisco is our premium Andean spirit distilled according to ancestral methods dating back to the 17th century. You might have something to say about that. I don't know. It is a single grape (laughs) pisco made from the Cabranta grape, or as our farmers like to call it, the Macho grape of Peru. Machu Pisco is today's sublime representation of the same pisco that inspired such free-spirited adventurers like Ernest Hemingway and Rudyard Kipling. It continues to be a temptation for pisco lovers. I feel like you can't distinguish your brand by saying Ernest Hemingway liked it, because as we've discovered in previous episodes, Ernest Hemingway drank everything. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like saying someone who likes drinks liked this drink. That's hardly a ringing endorsement. Um... Yeah, so um, we're doing Peru. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if we got course. to that bit yet. Yeah, I don't know if we mentioned that. <laughs> <laughs> the theme for today is Peru, hence we're both on the Pisco. Um, I thought I should probably start by acknowledging a couple of uh, well-known drinks in Peru that we have actually mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, so cover that briefly. One is Inca Cola, which was actually two episodes ago. <laughs> uh, we mentioned <laughs> when we were talking about Iron Brew as... One of the three colas that outsells Coca-Cola. So we said in Peru, there's mm-hmm. Inca-Cola that outsells Coca-Cola. It's one of three countries where that is the case. But since 1997, it has actually been owned by Coca-Cola. So, yeah, I know. Um, got a couple of extra facts about it, though. So it's known as Golden Cola um, internationally. Cola with a K. Mm-hmm. Um, it was created in Peru in 1935 by... A British person. <laughs> okay. British immigrant called Joseph Robinson Lindley. So it's hardly traditional Peruvian. Um, it's sweet, fruity, and m- the mostly uh, the flavour profile is lemon verbena, which it has in it. Mm. Um, Americans say it tastes like bubble gum or cream soda, but I think that's because their palates are... Um, um, Broken. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like... I am going to say underdeveloped and then realised how insulting that was. Um, 
Maybe they just don't have the references for Lemon Verbena is what I was trying to say. Um, <laughs> also, they're trash. Uh, it's sometimes <laughs> categorised. <laughs> just feeling harsh today. Sometimes categorised as a champagne cola. Um, it's been described as an acquired taste and the intense colour alone is enough to drive away the uninitiated. I think it looks, looks nice and I like Lemon Verbena. I think that quote yeah. came from an American. I mean, um, I don't, I don't know if I've ever really had the f- the taste, but I love the scent lemon verbena. Mm. Some of my fav toiletries are lemon verbena, so yep. yeah, I'll drink it. Exactly. Drink anything, me. <laughs> <laughs> your, your endorsement is worth as much as Ernest Hemingway, <laughs> but without the literary skills. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Do you know Ouch. what? I'm gonna I'm gonna test that next episode. Um, that's that's a little teaser for what we're doing next time. Uh, we also mentioned another popular Peruvian tipple, which is in the tea episode at the beginning of this year. That was coca tea, also called mm. mate, mate de coca, which is obviously not a tea, it's an infusion. I, I was angry about this at length. Um, <laughs> made using raw or dried leaves of the coca plant, which is native to South America. Uh, so the leaves of the coca plant contain alkaloids that when they are extracted chemically are the source for cocaine. Woo! Mm. Um, the amount of, I feel like that's the second time in a few weeks I've cheered cocaine like I'm a connoisseur. Um, <laughs> a cup of coca tea prepared from one gram of coca leaves, which is the typical contents of a tea bag, contains approximately 4.2 milligrams of organic coca alkaloid. In comparison, a typical line of cocaine, yes, I know that they're called lines, contains between <laughs> 20 and 30 milligrams. So it's about, it's just under a quarter of a line, basically. Ah, so that's um, a lot of tea you've got to drink. <laughs> well, it's four cups of tea for a line. I mean, let's not pretend we have enough four cups of tea in a day. We are that wild. Uh, The coca alkaloid content of coca tea is such that a consumption of one cup of the tea can cause a positive result on a drug test for cocaine. But it is legal in Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, Argentina and Ecuador. Uh, Its use is being discouraged, though, um, by the Convention on Narcotic Drugs. And it is illegal in the US, for example. Unless it's been decocainized. So like you would have decaffeinated coffee or tea, you can decocaine de- your de-coked. coca tea. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, decaf's no fun either. So. <laughs> uh, so many many of the indigenous people of the Andes use the tea for medicinal purposes. Um, it's been used, in fact, in more modern times to wean people off cocaine, um, addicts <laughs> off the drug. So you could use it like that. Uh, it's often recommended, actually, for travellers in the Andes to prevent altitude sickness, um, although its effectiveness hasn't actually been scientifically studied. Um, so I picked Peru as a subject, by the way, because not long ago I went to the exhibit at the British Museum that they did. They did a big exhibit on Peru and there was lots of really cool objects and I learned a lot about it. Um, and one of the things I saw there was the pouches that they would keep the coca leaves in as they were traveling. They were known mm. as chuspas. Um, and so it's credited with giving them sort of the focus that they needed and the ability to handle altitudes to cross the long mountainous routes that were so important for their civilization. So they all had their own special coca leaf pouch. And they were usually woven from the hair of alpacas or llamas. Um, and they were quite important symbols for social identity as well. So they they showed people how skilled that they were in weaving. So they would weave their own and it was uh, to express their artistic skills and their cultural affiliations. Uh, we even have ceramics that I saw there with paintings of them, of images of people wearing these chuspas right for back as far as the first century. So incredible part of their tradition. And uh, although there's been no, as I say, scientific studies into the effectiveness of coca leaves altitude, I think you'd have to be a bit of a fool to think that there wasn't a correlation given how many centuries (laughs) they've been doing it for. So there we go. That was a couple of things that we have sort of mentioned, but I wanted to give a little bit more bonus info because we are entering the world of Peru. I'm going to sip on my delicious homemade um, Pisco Sour while uh, you tell me what Pisco is all about. I'm going to crush my can. Before I start. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Pisco, it's yep. the national drink of Peru. 
so yeah, it makes sense to start with Pisco. Uh, what is Pisco? It's uh, colour colourless, or it might sometimes be a yellowish to amber colour. Uh, it's a brandy produced in winemaking regions. Uh, it's made by distilling fermented grape into a high-proof spirit. We're all familiar with that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been around since the 16th century. Um, now, I didn't go too much into the whole um, production and that kind of side of things. I went more into the history of Fisco because she's got some baggage. Um, <laughs> she got she got a chusper. <laughs> it's a pain, right? So... Peru and Chile both claim that Pisco is theirs. And fight, fight, fight. A huge <laughs> fight. Yeah, they, they, it's ongoing. It's it's problematic. Um, so let's go back to like 16th century. Uh, in colonial times, those regions of Chile and Peru, they, among others, were owned by the Spanish. And this viceroyalty of New Spain covered a large area, including Central Southwest America, California, Mexico, other places. Um, so eventually, regions in South America got their independence from Spain, and through battles and the War of the Pacific, they established themselves as the country we know now. Uh, so during this time, lots of bloodshed, um, lots of animosity between Peru and Chile. And that has now transferred into a bit of war over Pisco. <laughs> um, so there are various claims of its origin. It's said to have been developed by Spanish settlers as an alternative to pomace brandy, which they were importing from Spain. Um, so the region was really good for growing grapes. I'm going to talk about that a lot more later. Uh, Winemaking as well, that's a big industry there. Um, but yeah, they, they were shipping this um, pomace brandy through the Peruvian port town of Pisco uh, and just try and make lives easier and less expensive. Instead of porting, they thought, we'll make our own. And so therefore they claim Pisco was made by the Spanish settlers in Peru. Uh, it's also said that until the 1800s, this spirit was only used to fortify wine and pre present, prevent oxidisation. Um, but obviously it is really tasty and it couldn't be ignored. It couldn't just be used as, you know, not a byproduct of wine, mm -hmm. but something necessary to stop oxidation or fortifying wine. It seemed like a waste. Uh, so it wasn't ignored for too long. And by 1764, production of Pisco in the region completely dwarfed that of wine. It made up of at least 90% of grape drinks produced in the region. However, that's Peru. Over in Chile, they say that Pisco originated there. Uh, there's a linguist, a Chilean linguist called Rodolfo Lenz. He says that the word Pisco is of um, Quechua origin, meaning bird. And it was used all along the Pacific coast of the Americas. Um, it could be the case that it's been made in areas that have shifted ownership over time. But he is adamant that no, it's a Quechua word and that's why it's known as Pisco. Um, you'd think by this point it would make sense that the, the Peru story sounds more legit. I don't know mm -hmm. if that's just me being me. Um, but wait, there's more. <laughs> <laughs> so Peru and Chile even make Pisco differently. <laughs> mm. uh, so yeah, they, they're both great brandies. They're both called Pisco sometimes. But really, they're completely different drinks. So what's the difference? Peruvian Pisco. So this is governed by a stream of traditionalist rules and regulations. It can only be made using eight different types of grape, four aromatic and four non-aromatic. It can only be made within certain regions and once distilled, it's rested in glass jars for three months to allow flavours to meld. Nothing's added, not even water. It's just completely untouched. They've got three different types. Pisco Puro, which is made with one variety of grape. Pisco Acholado, which is made with a variety of grapes. And then there's Pico Mosto, Pisco Mosto Verde, which is green must. That's made from grapes that are only partially fermented before they're distilled. So it's a lot sweeter, but also a lot more costly because it takes more grapes to produce. So that's the Peruvian Pisco. It's quite a lot more governed than the Chilean one. So... 
The Chilean Fisco, it still has regional governance, but they're way more relaxed, the rules. They can use 13 different types of grapes. And once it's distilled, it can be unaged or they can age it, sometimes in um, American French oak or Rowley, which is a tree which is native to Chile. So in their respective countries, it can be called Pisco. But then that's when it starts to get really convoluted. So Peruvian Pisco sold into Chile must be relabeled. Either Agrigente, which is a generic term for fermented beverage, or Distillado de Uva, which is grape distillate. They cannot call it Pisco if it's from Peru and being sold in Chile. So the same liquid can have a different labelling depending on where you drink it. Mm-hmm. So it's so yeah, that's where Pisco gets confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I do like I do like an ownership scrap. Oh, um, completely over yeah. booze. Mm-hmm. Because we've we've had quite a few of those, like um, you know, kind of uh, border exchanges. But I think it's really interesting as well that they've got different methods behind it mm-hmm. as well, like. It is possible, I guess, that they came about sort of semi-independently. Mm-hmm. But they, they want the glory, don't they? Yeah. They want the limelight. We did actually briefly mention Pisco Sour in our Sour episode back in um, back in mm. year one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do remember sort of saying, oh yeah, there's some ownership battles. Um, but thanks for taking us through the details of that. I think it's as murky, yeah. as, murky as it was when I didn't explain it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, when you're not in Chile and Peru and arguing over whether it's Pisco or not, uh, it still does quite okay in the global market, Pisco. Uh, we learned in the last episode actually with Angostura Bitters that uh, one of the most important tools to assist in global domination is a cocktail. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it's, it's actually it's a really good example. I'm quite lazy in that I can't be bothered to make my own pisco sour. But it is also that thing where I was like, I don't really know if I like a pisco sour. I'm not sure if I've ever had one. And also don't know if I like pisco, so I didn't want to go out and buy a whole bottle of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did read an interview with one of the pisco producers from Peru, and they were saying, you know, it's likely that people don't go out and buy a bottle of an unknown spirit, but if you discover it in a cocktail, it's a different story. You're more likely to go and buy it. Mm-hmm. Um and thankfully, there's a lot more tourism now happening in Peru and people are discovering Pisco. So I think it's starting to get more and more attention and lots more bars wanted to stock it. Um, it has been growing in the UK, around the world as well, for the last decade. Um, so that's driven, like I said, about a lot more people travelling to Peru, but also an increasing number of Peruvian restaurants appearing mm-hmm. in the UK and Europe and around the world as well. Um, but there are still big challenges, not least because educating the consumer is difficult when there's such confusion in the labelling, because you don't know if it's Pisco or not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so there's one chap called Eric Zandona who wrote a book called The Tequila Dictionary, which might be going on my Christmas list. <laughs> uh, he said, Pisco can be a really beautiful spirit when it's done well, but one of its biggest challenges in terms of broader acceptance is the fact that Peruvian and Chileans fight over who gets to call it Pisco. Mm. There could be a simple answer to this, but it's become political and complicated. Chilean and Peruvian Piscos are different enough to say we can both use the term, but they are grape distillates and that's largely unaged, but with different rules around different grapes and uses. The same way cognac and almanac are different for different reasons. So you could easily give this info to the public, but some brands and countries are fighting over the word, there's conflicting messaging, and you just can't educate people. (laughs) He's very, very frustrated. Yeah, I mean, you just can't educate people, I empathise with that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a sometime educator myself. Do you know what? I forgot to put Angostura bitters on top of mine. I cannot go on until I rectify that. So there we go. (laughs) There she is. Oh, there we go. That's better. That's better. I have to do it properly. can't believe I forgot. Sorry, please continue. Uh, So Eric got a little bit shady by the end of his interview. And he finished up saying, It can be considered a shame that the politics are holding the drink back, but I can't help but appreciate the beauty of Pisco as a spirit of its people in its place. 
Considering the trouble caused by borders, perhaps it's fitting that global domination is not on the cards yet. For now, the experience of Pisco is a special one to be cherished by those who know it, those who are wise enough to seek it out, and those that are just plain lucky to find it. Hmm. I mean, I just I just went to my local shop and they had four, di- <laughs> four different Piscos to choose from. And I went for the one with the funniest name. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's not... Let's not dwell too much on Eric and his beef. Let's talk about cocktails. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, Pisco cocktails. Obviously, um, Pisco Sour is the most famous one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've got a few to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. The Pisco Punch. So during the gold rush in the 1800s, South Americans moved to North California on the hunt for gold and they took the Pisco with them. And the Pisco Punch was born in San Francisco in 1850. And it became quite prominent in uh, cocktail culture in the early U.S. history. So that consists of Pisco, pineapple juice, orange juice, lemon juice, cane sugar syrup and cloves. Muddle all those together and Mm -hmm. top with a champagne. Mm. I'm a sucker for anything topped with champagne. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so let's let's not ignore the Pisco Sour. It uh, was created by an American. He moved to Peru for the mining trade again. Uh, his name was Victor Vaughn Morris, and he set up the Morris Bar in Lima, and he created the cocktail. It was actually as an alternative to the whiskey sour. Hmm. So it's uh, two ounces. Obviously, it's American, so I've got American weights here. Two ounces of Pisco, one ounce of lime juice, half an ounce of simple syrup. An egg white and garnish with Angostura bitter or bitters. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly how I made mine. But with aquafaba instead of egg white. <laughs> Couple more cocktails. Uh piss cola. No, it's not cola and piss. <laughs> it's it's literally just pisco and cola. Yeah. Got that. <laughs> um I did a lot of digging. I wanted to find some unusual cocktails because obviously Pisco Sour feels like, yes, it dominates, but let's uh, give you some ideas. You've got a whole bottle of the stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, El Frail. So this is a drink that somebody came across while eating at a restaurant in Peru. Um, oh, no, sorry, I tell a lie. They were eating in a restaurant that specialises in Peruvian food and Pisco. Mm-hmm. And they made him this cocktail and he loved it, but they wouldn't give him the recipe. So he just kept ordering them and watched them <laughs> make it so he could memorise the ingredients. Um, so he writes, uh, they seem to combine what looks like a sensible amount of 40 proof vodka like Pisco, Cointreau, balsamic reduction, lemon juice. Pour that into a martini glass and add rosemary as garnish. That sounds... I can understand yeah. why they were so obsessed with learning how to make that, because that sounds great. <laughs> it does sound good. Uh, another one I found that sounds very interesting, um, Beatmaster. Mm-hmm. So this is Pisco beetroot syrup. You can make your own, just a simple syrup with half a peel chopped up beetroot. Cool and strain that out before the solids. Mm-hmm. So you can use that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, Pisco, Pisco beetroot syrup, lime juice, and top with ginger beer. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I'm down for that. Yeah, so please do make all of those and report back. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've, I mean, I've got a whole bottle. I'm sure there'll be some left over next time you visit. We can. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Please experiment. do. Yeah, okay. Let's, I'll, I'll bring these in uh, Spreadsheet. recipes and we'll make them. Spreadsheet it. Uh, but yeah, that's Pisco. Uh, she's got blokes fighting over her left, right, and centre. Thank you very much. Um, mm. I, I I tasted some before I made the cocktails. I want to, you know, get a taste of the pure stuff. Um, mm. Really nice. It's lovely. Yeah. I approve. Yeah. Mm. So don't don't hesitate to get yourself a bottle if you're a Minganari. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, I thought I'd just mention a couple of other spirits that um, Peru likes to partake of. One is called Cañazo, which is a transparent spirit made from a sugar cane uh, that has been produced in the Andes since the 16th century um, from the fresh sugar cane juice, not like the molasses or sugar that the majority of rums um, are made with. Uh, Cañazo tastes quite strong, but people do drink it straight um, in a shot. Some people will mix it with soda. Um, the 
the reports on the forums I've seen have not been too kind uh, <laughs> to Kainata, really. Sort of traditionally, it's the one that alcoholics drink as opposed to the nice biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> um, but from what I can tell, it's just basically a rum. Um, but there is um, there is sort of a fancier version of it, Kanya Alta, which is produced in Olantai Tambo at the Distilleria Andina, uh, which is sort of the high quality... Um, sugarcane spirits and kind of like much more refined and filtered um yep and they sell that that's the one the version you'll get if you go to the fancy restaurants as opposed to the corner shops and then (laughs) there's another version uh, made with the sugarcane spirit called matakoi um and that they add fresh herbs and fruits and spices to that so i think it's probably a bit more like a gin Mm-hmm. Um, that they're making with it in terms of the method. It's the the sugarcane juice is cold pressed and fermented, infused with fifty botanicals from the Amazon and Andes, twice distilled in copper pot stills at over nine thousand feet altitude. There's no added sugar, colour, flavour, or stabilising additives. So it sounds very much like a premium sort of gin type thing to me. Um, made in the sacred valley of the Incas, Matacoy means. Um, <laughs> means death to guinea pigs. <laughs> God. What did the guinea pigs do? Well, look, I, I wasn't really going to go down this road, but I mean, they do eat them. <laughs> <gasps> they do eat no. there is There is a particular speciality dish, but I was like, I'm not going to talk about that one. Oh, look but still, at why that anger? We don't say, like, death to cows <laughs> before people eat a burger. I don't know. Oh. Anyway, couple of couple of spirits to throw into the mix there. So they do have uh, sugar cane spirits as well. But what I mostly want to talk about is chicha. Um, so chicha is mostly a corn beer from the Andes, which can either be fermented or not. It's still called the same thing, whether it's alcoholic or not. Um, and this drink covers both the pre and post Spanish conquest periods of South America. Um, I say it's mostly a corn beer because it can also be made from other indigenous crops like quinoa, peanuts, um, manioc, they would call it. We would know probably more as cassava here, palm fruit, potatoes, osa, um, anything that grows in Peru, really. Do you know osa? Have you had osa, by the way? No. Osa I had for the first time a few months ago. It arrived in my odd box um, as a little treat from Peru. It's kind of, they're kind of like potatoes. They're like little, really tasty um, potatoes, but you can have them raw as well as um, uncooked. So they're really like nice, crunchy salad things. I, um, I and they're a little I bit citrusy. Hmm? I eat potatoes raw. Is that weird? You should not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you should not do that. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is weird. Yeah, but they're like little, little citrusy potatoes. They're delicious. Anyway, find, go find some osa, everyone. Um, there are lots of regional variations of chicha. Um, and in the um, Inca Empire, I will talk about mostly, although Inca Empire is not all of Peruvian history. Um, it was it was also ceremonial, had ritual uses. So, etymology. Uh, the Bloody exact... loves it. Hmm? Bloody loves his etymology. I love, I, look, if you can't understand the meaning of a word, don't use it. Um... <laughs> Shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> the exact origin, I'm saying that, the exact origin is debated. Um, one belief is that the word chicha is of Taino origin and became uh, a generic term used by the Spanish to define any and all fermented beverages that were brewed by indigenous people of the Americas. Um, however, there's another thought um, that chicha comes from the Kuna word chichap or chiap, which means maize. So, I don't know. Choose your poison. I like the one where it comes from maize rather than anything yeah, that's fermented because legit. it doesn't have to be fermented. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another one from the Nahuatl word chichatil, which means fermented water. And the verb chicha meaning to sour a drink. Um, and because the postfix atl means water. Um, so it could be any of those. It's probably a mix. They might have evolved independently. They might have just been taken because it had more than one meaning. Who knows? Um, there's a Spanish idiom, though, called uh, that goes ni chicha ni limonada, which means neither chicha nor lemonade, um, mm-hmm. neither one thing or the other. 
is their expression. Okay. So we would say maybe neither fish nor fowl, that kind of thing. Neither chicha nor lemonade. Uh, the process for making chicha is essentially the same process for making malted barley beer. You germinate the maize, extract the malt sugars, boil the wort, ferment it in large vessels. Uh, here it's traditionally huge earthenware vats for several days. And then usually the brewer makes large amounts and um, uses lots of clay vats to do that. The, the vats that they use, because their clay will break down easily, they can only be used a few times. So they tend to kind of arrange them in a row, do them all in one go. They put fires in the middle, which reduces the heat loss as they're uh, brewing it. Um, in some cultures, instead of germinating the maize to release the starches, the maize is ground and then it's moistened by saliva in the chicha maker's mouth and formed into small balls, which are then flattened and laid out to dry. Um, mm. So it makes sense that the, the naturally occurring um, uh, enzymes, betalin enzymes in the maker's saliva will catalyze the breakdown of starch um, into for turning the maize into maltose. Um, so that process of, of chewing the grains or the starches um, has been used in pre-modern cultures around the world, uh, including, for example, the original sake in Japan. They would have done the same thing as well. Um, when it's prepared in this way, it's known as chicha de muco. Muco, I think, relating to mucus. Uh, chicha morado, morada is a non-fermented chicha usually made from the ears of purple maize which are boiled with pineapple rind cinnamon and cloves and this gives a strong purple colored liquid which is then mixed with sugar and lemon and that's usually taken as a refreshment um some people say oh, health benefits whatever but i think it's just tasty um, and that's quite common in peru and also bolivia as well so it's generally had as an accompaniment to food as a non-alcoholic version sounds great mm -hmm. doesn't it yeah um, women are most associated with the production of chicha, I mean, as we found with beers in many cultures until it all went a bit weird in the West. Um, <laughs> men and children are still involved with the process of making chicha, but women control the production and distribution. So for many women in Andean society, um, it's a key part of their identity because it provides um, political power, leverage, money. Um, so during the Inca Empire, women were taught the techniques of brewing chicha in something called um, an akiawasi, which is um, a school just for women. And it, <laughs> so you might think, yay, feminism. But the, um, the most attractive women were chosen to be the ones. They were the chosen women. And they would go and learn um, brewing and weaving and all those sorts of things. So I don't know how feminist that truly is. Uh, you can go to a chicha tavern to get your chicha, chicherias. Um, they were have traditionally, you know, they've not been licensed. They're home-based businesses that produce their chicha on site. I still wouldn't say no. Um, they are normally sold in half-liter glasses called caporal uh, to be um, drunk on location, or you can get them by liter to take them home. Generally sold straight from the um, earthenware pots that they're brewed in called chomba, which I think is a good word. Great word. Uh, chomba. Uh, it's in, if you go to the northern coast of Peru, you'll get it served in a dried gourd known as a poto while in the Peruvian Andes, it's often served in a jero. Uh, jero. Caro. Caro? Caro. Caros. <laughs> Caros are traditionally made from wood uh, with intricate designs carved on the outside. So in colonial times, um, the caros were painted with figurative depictions on the exterior instead of carving. So depending on kind of when you got it, if it's, if it's an old one anyway, carved or painted, depending on whether it was pre or post-colonial. Um, some of the keros were made of metals, many are now made of glass, um, and the Inca leaders would use identical pairs, and then they would give one of the pairs to extend, um, to invite people for a drink. So basically, if you had a matching pair, it was, come drink with me. Mm -hmm. um, and that represented sort of an indebtedness upon the, um, the side of the invitee, so I'm like giving you a glass and hopefully you will return with it. Um, so in this way, the drinking of chicha via queros has cemented those relationships of power and alliances between people and groups. 
Um, it was important in ceremonies for adolescent boys coming of age, especially for the sons of Inca nobility. So young men would get their adult names in ceremonies using chicha. And one thing that they would do would be to go on a pilgrimage to uh, mountains. So uh, that had significant meaning. They would do that a month before their ceremony, honouring kind of their uh, them becoming mature. And after the pilgrimage, the boys would then chew the maize to make the chicha that they would drink at the end of the month-long ceremony. I quite like that generally as an idea. Like you're sort of you're having a coming of age, and you have to make the brew yourself that you're then going to celebrate with. I think if everyone I, did that, there'd be a lot more respect for alcohol. <laughs> I would be doomed. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about your skill level. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, that would be so nice. People would be like, oh, I appreciate what goes into making a drink. But yeah, I forgot yours would be terrible. I just have um, a rubbish time, yeah. <laughs> it would be taken as a sign and I think you'd be sacrificed. Uh, <laughs> so at the Incan capital of Cusco, the king poured uh, chicha into a gold bowl at the navel of the universe, which was an ornamental Ooh. stone dais with a throne and pillar in the centre of the plaza. And Where's the, chi- the navel of the universe? So this uh, this would be like a a, a sculpture, a, um, a top ah, right. a yeah, a top a pillar, and it would be called the navel, navel of the universe. And they pour it into there, and then it cascades into the gullet of the sun god, uh, to the temple of the sun. And the spectators would be really excited, and they would watch watch the high god quaff the uh, the chicha, the precious brew. Uh, so at most festivals, people participated in days and days of drinking uh, after the main feast uh, the spanish were horrified by all of this when they arrived they were just like no <laughs> stop it you're too drunk but they were having a good time saying they were celebrating uh, worshiping the uh, the gods but yeah they would pour it into like stone sculptures and stuff um there were human sacrifices which is why i made that joke <laughs> at certain <laughs> points um during their empires uh, human sacrifices first had to be rubbed in the dregs of chicha and then they would be tube-fed with more chicha for days while lying buried alive in tombs. Wow. Is that how you want to go? No. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's a little bit um it's a little bit foie gras, isn't it? Yeah. So force-fed something, yeah. Yeah. Um special sacred places scattered throughout the empire. Um, and, and mummies of previous kings and ancestors were richly bathed in maize flour and presented with chicha offerings to the accompaniment of dancing and panpipe music. Um, even today, the, okay, no, no human sacrifice, but Peruvians will sprinkle chicha uh, to Mother Earth from the communal cup when they sit together to, to drink. Um, and the cup then proceeds in the order of each drinker's social status as uh, uh, you just continue toasting until it's, it's all gone. Um, libations isn't it it's called when you mm. tip them on the ground to, to the gods uh this can go wrong uh, <laughs> after <laughs> what so could after, possibly go wrong <laughs> what could go wrong so after defeating an enemy inca rulers would have the heads of the defeated enemy converted into a cup to drink chicha from mm, gosh <laughs> Um, so by doing this, it showed how superior the Incas themselves were by leading their army to victory and that Chicha was at the forefront of that. Um, after major victories, the Incas would celebrate by, by drinking Chicha. Um, when the Incas and the Spanish conquistadors met, the conquistadors would not understand that Chicha was particularly significant. So we've got this account from Tito Cusi, uh, who was an Inca ruler, who explains how his uncle Atahualpa uh, reacted when uh, these these invaders did not respect the chicha. He says, uh, the Spaniard, upon receiving the drink in his hand, spilled it, which greatly angered my uncle. And after that, the two Spaniards showed my uncle a letter or a book or something, saying that this was the inscription of God. And the king, my uncle, as he felt offended by the spilling of the chicha, took the letter and knocked to the ground, saying, I don't know what you have given me. Go on, leave. <laughs> Get out. So um, I love, <laughs> I love that it's about the Spanish trying to introduce Christianity to the Incas, and they're like, "But you spilled my beer, so yeah, absolutely you my not. Beer. Like priorities, mate. I don't think so." Um, so they got really offended if uh, if someone insulted Chicha. Um, the economy of the Incas is interesting because um, there was no currency. 
So um, rather than rather than that, the economy depended on trading products and services, and the Inca would distribute items out to the people that work for them. So chicha was produced by men along the coastline in order to trade or present to um, to the Inca Empire, and this differed from the women that were producing the chicha inland because they were doing that um, for community gatherings and important ceremonies. Um, relationships were really important in the Inca community, um, and it would mean that you a family could be provided with supplementary goods that not everyone had access to. It's one of the reasons why they were so successful because they had these amazing roads across the whole country and they um, they traded goods that they all made and they created amazing storehouses and had great agricultural practices so that no one in the empire would go hungry as long as you were working and producing something for them everyone shared everything i mean it's essentially kind of a little bit more of a utopian idea of communism um, mm-hmm. had, it, had it not gone through the lens of things that it has, has gone through but um they seem pretty happy with that system apart from the human sacrifice uh, <laughs> So they discovered these chicha mills actually in uh, Machu Picchu, the very famous um, uh, historic landmark in Peru, which my Pisco is named after. Um, but archaeologists also found evidence of its production in recent excavations at Cherubal, um in southern Peru. They found a palace complex um, which was occupied by people from the Wari Empire. So I said it's not all Inca. People just think of Inca, I think, with Peru. The Wari Empire was between 600 um, CE and 1000. Um, And in that palace complex, they found the largest pre-Incan brewery ever found in the Americas. So each clay vat could hold 150 litres of beer. Um, which would be left to ferment for three to five days until it kind of reached its desired fermentation. And there were at least 12 vats located at the brewery, which means it had a capacity of 1,800 litres in a single batch. So that's lots of beer for people to enjoy. Um, if you want to taste some chicha today, you you can. Um, there's a brewery in Chicago called Off Colour Brewing, and they collaborated with the Field Museum of Natural History, uh, to recreate the old recipe based on the findings at the pre-Incan site um, that I just mentioned. So they imported some purple corn from Peru, they spiced it up with some mulberries, berries, and they added little hops as well. So, you know, it's sort of like it is, but they've thrown in some hops. Um, yeah, there you go. That, that's, that's Chicha in all its ceremonial glory. That was a lot. I did not expect that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot, lot to learn from their, their main spirit. I think it's just that it's so, it was so important culturally. You know, they all did it for, for rituals, for ceremonies, for parties of every occasion. They trade it. It had nutrients, you know. Mm. It's, it seems it's just a very part, part of their, important part of their culture. Mm. Thank you for that. Mm. I'm going to talk about wine. Mm. Mm. Please do don't often think of Peru when chatting about wine. Um, obviously, it's kind of dwarfed by the success of Chilean and Argentinian wine. Yeah, um, absolutely. I had I had a little... Before I decided to go for Pisco, I had a little wander around some of the shops looking for Peruvian wine and um, did not come up trumps because, as you say, it's been dominated same. by other countries. Yes. Um yeah, I'll, I'll get to it, and it, it tastes a little different as well. I'll come to it all. But um, yeah, wine in Peru. Unsurprisingly, it was brought over by the Spanish. They <laughs> um, couldn't live without their grapes and their booze. Um, <laughs> in fact, despite Peru not being the biggest producer, producer of the drink, uh, Peru was home to the very first vineyard. Um, so the very the Spanish... Do you mean in... Do you mean in South America? In in South America, yeah. Okay. So this <laughs> I was going to be really uh... <laughs> shocked then. <laughs> no, 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 not in the world. In South America, um, the Spanish first set one up in the 16th century. So mm-hmm. it all kind of started there, but afterwards they obviously started popping up across South America. But Peru is where it all began. Uh, there was, however, something of a disruption in 1687 when the entire southern coastal area of Peru was struck by a massive earthquake. Uh, lots of the cities were destroyed along with the wine cellars. Um, and it was after that that there was a growth in the production of um, Pisco, which is perhaps one of the many reasons why um, wine from the region isn't so famous, more Pisco. Mm. 
But if you do want to go to Peru and sample some wines, the place to be is Ica. 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 Um, it's about 300 kilometers south of the capital, Lima. And it's where the majority of the vineyards are. And you'll be able to sample a lot of tasty wines. Um, there are lots of tours, um, obviously the vineyards, but also you can enjoy some dune buggying. Thought perhaps you'd want to put that on the spreadsheet. Fancy trekking around Ica and drinking some wine and going up and down dunes and some buggies. Yeah, yeah? I do. Yeah, put it Absolute on. Absolute nonsense. Um, but what's the wine like? So they do produce... Um, the ones that we're more used to seeing, Malbecs, the Cab Sauvs, Chardonnay, etc. Um, but like I said, they're dwarfed by the Argentina and Chile kind of developing wide regions. So you don't come across a lot of Peruvian wine in our supermarkets. But one thing to think about is the flavour of it. It's not what we're used to. So the harsh climate is unlike that of any other wine region. They're essentially growing grapes in the desert. Mm. <laughs> Uh, it's not what you come kind of what comes to mind when you think of what like a wine producing climate, but it's what they've got and it's what they work with, and it's due to those conditions that Peruvian wines have a really distinct sweet flavour, which is perhaps why we don't see it in the supermarket. Because if you have traditional Peruvian wine, it won't be like the kinds of wine that we're used to drinking. It's not quite a dessert wine, but it is sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, most of the locals prefer sweet wine. Um, they're often much cheaper as well, which helps. Um, but they don't drink wine on a regular basis, which might also explain why wine isn't doing so well, um, as well as the other regions. Um, it's rare that you see people who are drinking wine in a bar in Peru. They'll often go for a beer. It tends to be more of an event or an occasion that they kind of call for wine. However, they are trying their best to get this recognition there. They're doing a lot of stuff with the culinary world and trying to get chefs to champion local wines and pair it with food. Um, It is becoming a bigger player in the scope of the world wine stage. Some of their products have won awards. Every year there's more and more Peruvian wines winning awards and being presented. I did have a look on my Naked Wines account to see if I can order some Peruvian wine, but they don't have any on there yet, which is annoying, but I'll perhaps nag them. Uh, so we might see it soon. Um, there was one wine producer that was interviewed um, and he said there's around, well, this is his kind of theory on how to make it a success as well. Because I think he is frustrated that a lot of the time the winemakers in Peru are frustrated because they feel like Pisco is just competition and they'll never beat it. Um, but he said, you know, Given that Pisco is made with wine grapes, it makes sense that Peruvian wineries produce both still wine and Pisco, um, similar to how a lot of Italian wineries also produce Grappa. Mm. Um, so he said, if, if we embrace a Pisco as a part of our portfolio rather than as a competitive product, this could help the industry as a whole. So yes, Peruvian wine, it's not quite what you would expect. It's sweet, but... Um, quality of the production is getting better and better. They are taking on the world stage. They're ambitious. So fingers crossed we will start to see some when you do go looking for it sooner rather than later. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Noted. Oh, well, I'm determined <laughs> to find some. Yes, I would like to drink some. Can I talk to you about cochineal? Oh, yes, please. Are you sure? <laughs> uh, is it worse than eating guinea pigs and sacrificing people? Similar vibes. Um, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, you don't know what cochineal is? I've heard the word. Okay. So um, it, it's a food colouring, essentially. Mm. But uh, here's the story behind it. So uh, cochineal is an insect. So it's a cochineal insect which produces carminic acid. Um as an insect that helps um, deter predators because um, they don't they don't like it don't like the taste uh, carminic acid is typically around up to sort of almost a quarter of the dried insect's weight and it can be extracted from the insect's body and also eggs and then it'll be mixed with aluminium or calcium salts to make carmine dye 
which is also known as cochineal after the insects it comes from. So carmine dye is used um, was used in the Americas for clothing fab- for colouring fabrics and became an important export good in the 16th century during the colonial period, although it had been used natively in Peru from about the 7th century, as far as I know. Um, After synthetic pigments and dyes were invented in the late 19th century, use of natural dye products gradually um, went away. But then when we had fears over the safety of artificial food additives, that brought back um, popularity of things like cochineal dyes, which are you know, natural, as far as they come from animals, um, well, insects. And um, the increased demand for that made the cultivation of those insects profitable again. So Peru is the largest producer of this, the largest producer of cochineal. Uh, a couple of historic things about uh, cochineal use. Uh, in 1454, Pope Paul II officially changed the colour of the robes worn by Catholic cardinals from cardinals purple to vibrant red, which is the colour of cochineal. Uh, by 1558, their red robes were um, were created with the cochineal by the uh, American insects. By the 1600s, cochineal also gave the English red coats their distinctive officer uniforms, if you're familiar with that as well. The water-soluble form of cochineal is used in alcoholic drinks with calcium carmine. Uh, and the insoluble form is used on lots of different products. So I think most famously Campari... Uh, used to contain it um, so mm. they they got rid of it not too long ago as uh, the one they were using but it is still used in s- drinks that are similar to Campari um, particularly in the US like Bruto Americano and uh, Leopold Aperitivo those sorts of things so yeah if you see something that's like Campari chances are the color of it might have come from the cochineal insect Starbucks, in fact, uh, used it up until 2012 uh, for, to colour their drinks. Um, so it still is used round about. So if you're worried about consuming insects, always look for carmine or cochineal as a colouring because that has come from is bugs. It, uh, is it used in food as well? Yeah. Because I remember as a kid, it was always that kind of like playground thing where I think it was um, Smarties or M&M's. The kids always used to say, oh, don't eat those colour ones. They're made from bugs. Very possibly. <laughs> I, did, I didn't go specifically into all the brands that used it, but um, it has been it has been popular and people do still do still use it. Yeah, so it's something to look out for. Um, so obviously that, that raises ethical di- dilemmas on different fronts. Uh, a counter-argument to kind of that version being uh, more unethical, I mentioned this in the Iron Brew episode, is that the the colourings they use, um, the, the yellow, which has been a bit controversial, is derived uh, from petroleum <laughs> as a byproduct. Mm-hmm. So many people would suggest that the insect version is more sustainable than the petroleum version. Uh, of course, you could just not use either. Because uh, it's only colouring. <laughs> it has no aroma yeah. or flavour. So maybe we just don't need to colour stuff uh, is probably my answer to that. Um, there are about 200 species of Apuntia cacti, which is um, how the cochineal are harvested. They 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 breed and they live on the Apuntia cacti. There's lots mm. of varieties. It's possible to cultivate cochineal on almost all of them. So they were brought across the Mediterranean following colonization because they saw that this dye was a big export and the Spanish were like, yeah, let's bring lots of different varieties of this back and, and keep breeding it because it, it hybridizes as a plant. Um, but they are also widely edible, this cacti, both the fruit and the pads, as long as you remove the spines, obviously. Uh, the most <laughs> famous variety of this, I think, is probably the prickly pear. Um, I've looked for spirit that can be made out of out of this, out of the cacti, in addition to being coloured. Um, I found one using the pads called Apuntia from California, which likens itself to tequila, so it's clear and it's sort of sold like that. I guess because they think that people think tequila is made from cactus, which is, we found out is not true, because uh, the agave is not a cactus. Um, but it's the one I found that's most widely consumed, I think, seems to be a maroon-coloured liqueur from Malta and Sicily, which uses the fruit and uh, it tastes more like melon. So in Sicily, mm. it's called Licore da Fico d'India, which means fig of India, although neither of those is true. 
Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Malta, where it's called Bajtra. Um, so in Sicily, the cacti produce smaller fruits in August, which are then culled to make way for a second crop of the larger, fatter fruits um, that are ripe in autumn. Uh, as, as an homage to their size... Um, and probably the fact that the spikes get really big and are painful when you're harvesting them. Sicilians call this second crop uh, bastardoni, which means big bastards. <laughs> <laughs> so the big bastards are then harvested, peeled, fermented, and uh, transformed into that liqueur. I couldn't actually find an alcohol made from the cactus in Peru, um, but they do mm. drink the juice. Um, they drink the juice of it, which is delicious, by the way, cactus juice. Um, and so I presume they can sometimes mix it with other alcohols, uh, perhaps Pisco mm -hmm. um, or, or the other ones as well. I bet that'd be really tasty. Um, I want to end on what was my favourite part of the Peru exhibit, uh, okay. which is the vessels, the drinking vessels. Mm. You know, we love a good drinking vessel chat. Yes. Um and the vessels are really important in um, in Peru. The Andean creation legends say that the creator made the first men and women from clay, uh, which was then breathed into uh, the form for the first life on Earth. Um, Alpamasca is the Inca word for a person's body, meaning animated Earth. So they think of people as animated Earth, which is why kind of clay pots and stuff are so important to them. Um, the Moche culture grew and flourished at around um, 100 CE in the river valleys of the north coast of Peru. And for about 600 years, they developed and expanded throughout the river valleys and the coastal plains as well. Um, and they built these um, large temples, these vast irrigation canals and systems, and also lots of artworks and ceramics. So as I say, like proving history, not all Inca. Um, <laughs> And among that, we have surviving thousands of stirrup spout vessels. Um, there are at least 500 of those pieces, pieces that display um, sexual or erotic scenes. Ooh. You will be pleased to hear. Again, we, we love a bit of um, <laughs> sexy history so ceramics. Childish. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so these, these display quite a range um, of sexual and erotic imagery uh, and iconography. Um, but reproductive sex, as they put it, is rarely <laughs> depicted. Uh, the most common designs uh, are anal sex and fellatio. Yes, <laughs> now we're talking. Um, however, other subject matters, including uh, deities and hunting and fishing and combat and burials and... and dancing and warfare and skeletons and animals doing the deed um they they do all appear as well but it seems to be that they just particularly loved anal and fellatio um so the sex themed vessels appear much more frequently in what we have um surviving uh, there is evidence of the use of ceramic workshops being active uh, for some time to allow mass production of the vessels which is possibly why we've got so many um, and that probably meant that they used moulds as well uh, in making of it. It wasn't just all, all handmade and personal. They also show um, androgynous figures, male and female genitals, hermaphroditism, um, and sort of that seemed to be sort of more favoured. So it's interesting. Their, their approach to sort of sexual depiction seems to have been, shall we just say, non-traditional. <laughs> um, th my favourite thing, though, is the whistling vessels these are great if you haven't seen them if you haven't seen them kind of do go and look them up um they were made by the moche all the way through to the inca at the time of conquest so that's you know well over a thousand years they are consistently made um they are usually made in the shape of animals um but you also get people and mythical figures they contain two chambers uh, mostly, and they have a spout and also a hidden whistle inside. When you pour in liquid and then you slosh it back and forth between the two vessels that are connected, it makes a whistling sound, which has been designed to sound like the thing the vessel represents. So you get lots of bird designs um, and calls, for example, 
I have got a little sample uh, on my phone that I'm going to play for you. Um, and hopefully it doesn't sound too hideous on the recording, but um, I think it's worth a listen. So I think in this example, it starts with a dog and then it goes to birds and then monkeys. That's a little taster. That's crazy how they do that. It's incredible, isn't it? You from the outside, it's just a design of an animal looking like a pot. But in they like some you see some images where they've cut them in half or X-rayed them, and to be able to make a clay whistle that sounds like different animals and conceal it within a pot that makes the noise mm. only when you not when you blow it but only when you slosh water back and forth it if you blow it it makes a different noise it just blows my mind how did they do that <laughs> how did they know it's insane yeah so that was we've ruined ourselves haven't we <laughs> <laughs> well yeah on that note um our glasses have run dry <laughs> which means it's time to go for a piss okay Cheers, everybody!